1: Up next, my unedited conversation with archaeologist Whitney Battle-Baptiste. Hello.
0: Hello. Hi, can you hear me? me? Yes, I can.
1: Hi, it's Krista Tippett.
0: Hi, nice to meet you. (laughs) Yeah, you
1: too. Um, I'm hearing a bit of an echo, Chris. So um, how do I sound to you? Oh hello? Um, oh, are, hi. You, are you hearing your Fine. voice echoing back or anything like that? Yeah. Okay. I am. All right. <laughs> All right, we'll take care of that because that will drive us crazy. Okay. Um or we'll let other people take care of it. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: No problem.
1: I've um I read The Souls of Black Folk a long time ago, but I've just really been blown away getting back into this again this week.
0: Yeah. Um, actually, Du Bois is overwhelming, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the more you read, the more complex it seems, Is and, and there's never—he's just written so many different things that it's hard to put your finger on just who he is sometimes. You know, this
1: phrase, um, it's kind of a cliche, you know, fierce intelligence— I don't think I've ever really experienced it in the way when you started getting into his writing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, you know, like the, the soaring language. I mean, it, there's just the power of this man's voice that jumps off the page.
0: Right. It. it. He's, um, Rob Cox, who we just talked to in Special Collections, described it as he writes as if it's music and in yeah. and, and prose, even if it's not technically poetry, some of the ways in which the words he chooses and the way they're tied together, yeah. it seems as if it's music.
1: Yeah. So let me just make sure. Are we okay? Okay. So first, come back no, I'm actually, I'm not hearing anything. I'm okay. You're hearing. Okay. Can, can Bart hear you? Yes. Okay.
0: Button. Looks good on oh, good. the end.
1: Okay. Okay. Great. So, can Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me just...
0: Um, I have to shut the door again for them to actually tell. If it's
1: you, you may have already heard this from from Lily and Mariah. Um, you know, this is part of this... I mean, I, I think you know that this is this uh, series we have that's funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. And, um, and the idea is, um, you know, these are not history shows, um, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting line to dance back and forth across, but really how, you know, taking some figures from history and really exploring how their lives and ideas resonate for modern people. Um and we've had a lot of fun with this series I and mean, we've done Einstein and Rumi mm-hmm. and Amos, Amy Amy Sample McPherson and um Darwin <laughs> and wow. uh yeah and um and we so so and I th- I think this one um feels really important to me. And and I I think Du Bois is one of these figures who should be better remembered and more Mm -hmm. substantially remembered. So I think I hope that, you know, can be a, a contribution. So I I think I might just start by just asking you how you you know what do you do you remember how you first became aware of W W E B Du Bois your
0: earliest as a memory. child, I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. because I feel as if I keep getting reintroduced to Du Bois, but my earliest memory, I would think I grew up, my mom was a an educator, and there was we thought very deeply about uh, history in the past. And what I w- what I learned in school, I grew up in New York City and went to New York City public schools, but I always had an added, and I don't want to call it a debriefing, but there was an added element of learning the history of African people throughout the world uh-huh. that was supplemented. It supplemented my formal education. So, Du Bois, I learned about Du Bois and I learned about Martin Luther King and I learned about Malcolm X as. So, I learned about the civil rights in a very different way, I think, than was kind of prescribed by the public school system.
1: Yeah, so when and, when were you I can't, when were you born? Can I can I ask you it's that? It's fine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a grown-up now and yeah. proud. Um, so I was born December 1971. Okay.
1: Yeah, so you're growing you're you're in school in the 70s and 80s, so mm-hmm. that's yeah. So so the civil rights movement was very recent history. I guess but still right. not happening but all I, around you.
0: Yeah, but I I I like to describe uh my childhood as having the back the backdrop the backdrop of the um black nationalist movement. Yeah. So I I think that uh my mom um was around during the civil rights but heard Malcolm X speak but was around when Martin Luther King was Assassinated, and then Malcolm X. So, her—I mean, she saw Malcolm X speak on the streets of Harlem, which was petri- which made her extremely scared, mm. but made her think about the complexity of the civil rights as not one thing. And mm. so, I grew up thinking, um, understanding Du Bois as um, part of the architect of civil rights. But at the same time, I thought of him growing up as a pan-Africanist and not a civil rights Got activist.
1: It. Well, yeah. And that kind of points out where I wanted to go because it, you know, I think people now, they, they know something about King and they know something about Malcolm X. But Du Bois, uh, the memory of Du Bois is more faded. I mean, what to you, um, what, what, does, uh, what does he bring, add? How does he fill out you know, your imagination even now? You know, mm-hmm. wh- why? Why? What is important for you to know about him as part of that architecture?
0: Well, it, it's it's part of how, in many ways, I understand my identity. Mm-hmm. Du Bois, for me, brings the idea of being a global citizen into perspective. For it, it well, it it uh, the more you learn about Du Bois it's not a matter of him turning his back on the united states but he understanding himself as as a member of the world and growing up in the in in that with that idea as kind of part of my background the term african diaspora mm. is it means so many things and it's so layered but someone like du bois has a prominent place in understanding the different waves of migration of African people. So they're voluntary migration. It's involuntary migration. It's immigration at different decades and over time. And him leaving the United States and going to Ghana um, at the invitation of President Kwame Nkrumah, um, and Ghana is important in Pan-Africanism yeah. because you have to think about it as the, the beginning of independence for African nations that spread from Ghana, I would I could say, you know, some credit goes to Nkrumah, but the idea of the African mind, the idea of the African being as not being just in one place, but the dispersal as a part of the shared memory and experience. Of people of African descent, that for me is now what Du Bois. It's is how I re, I think about Du Bois. So there's an element of the beginnings of civil rights, but civil rights in many ways in the United States could not contain hmm. him and who he was, and um, that changed over time, of course.
1: What what changed over time? That civil rights change over time, or
0: just Du Bois's understanding of the world, right, understanding right, yeah. of of, yeah. of oppression, as well as, um, to be honest, he began to understand the oppression of African descent people in the United States as not just being a problem of the United States. It was this this global yeah. thing, and then he was very much into understanding humans and um, peace and equality in ways that were not sustainable um, in the United States after, I don't know, the 30s and the 40s when he was still pretty optimistic about the directions and the promise of of the United States. And, and he began to look to the world. Um, and ironically, you talk about how we how we can think about Du Bois, and honestly, in other places, Du Bois has a very significant role in the history and memory of places like uh, China, Germany, Ghana.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. You know I was, I, One of the things I was thinking as as you're talking is that there's a. I, I, it all seems to me that Du Bois is one of these figures whose whose ideas. Whose time also wasn't big enough for his ideas, right? <laughs> and, yes. And that now some of the things he was saying, some of the way, it's kind of the, the global way he was thinking, some of the, the you know the large way he was diagnosing issues, and you know that he he wrote he wrote the the souls of black folk, but he also talked about the souls of white folk. I mean, he he saw mm-hmm. race as something. Um, that that was about all of us and it it, it feels to me like you know maybe in the 21st century we are just becoming receptive to these kind this kind of thinking
0: yes I and that's why I mentioned that I I feel as if I'm constantly being reintroduced to Du Bois because he started writing really writing at probably about the age of 14 or 15, and he passed at the age of 95. Yeah. So, And he wrote more than one autobiography, mm-hmm. which he joked, as if you live that long, you should be able to revise what happened in your life. Um, and so because if you read different Moments and different ways in which he writes. He, he has a... There are different sensibilities and there are different ways in which he remembers um, certain things. That's interesting.
1: Do you, Is there anything, like just a specific example of that that comes to mind?
0: Yes. Yeah, his... Okay. Um, memories of his father. Um, he was born and raised in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And... His mother was Mary Mary Sylvenia His father was Alfred Du Bois. Alfred was born in on the island of Haiti, and came here as a child. Um, he and Mary Silvania had a apparently a very quick courtship, marriage. Du Bois was born, and then the marriage was no more. It ended quickly. I think it ended as quick as it began. Um, but if you read different moments or different texts, there's one where he recalls his father having passed away, him never meeting him. And then there's another one where he talks about his father having gone to Hartford to pursue a uh, better life for the family to never return and he's never and never saw him again and then there's also a story about perhaps his family the Burkhardt family never really accepted Alfred Du Bois for two reasons he was extremely fair skinned as it was described by Mm -hmm. Du Bois as well as he was not one of the established New England families and So he was a stranger. He had no kin and therefore was not really acceptable for Mary Slovenia to marry and stay with. So those are three different stories. So he was kind of pushed out Mm -hmm. by the Burkhardt family in Great Barrington. And so which one is true? It's the perspective, I guess, of... Did he pass away? Because the reality is, is that he actually was a barber in Hartford and lived <laughs> to a very late age. Okay. So. I mean, um,
1: I just uh, one of the things um, that jumped out at me when I'm looking at um, him and your work, how you have approached him as a scholar. Um, I mean, I, I, I like your description— um, I actually watched – you did an interview, which we will put up on our website because it's very interesting and it's great background, I think, to the conversation we're having. Um, You did an interview with a a doctoral student in anthropology. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Justin Dunin on – anyway, it's online. Mm -hmm. And it's really about you. It's about you becoming a scholar. Um, And you talked about, you know, your – on your i guess is it on your mother's side your second generation bronx but you had family yes. you had family in the south so that mm-hmm. legacy of race in the south was with you but you also had this as you've described this afrocentric northern you know new york bronx world um and then when you go to um and again you know that's like that that's this multiplicity of african experience african american experience that um that's also an example of this and then, you know, you talk about when you went as an archaeologist to work on Du Bois' estate that his that he was that he, his situation in racial history was in the rural north which is actually mm-hmm. a phrase I don't think you ever hear when people talk about even in a complicated way about this history. <laughs> it's just kind of fascinating to me all these juxtapositions this multiplicity, really.
0: Right. I think I'm from New York City, and I, first, I never thought I would end up in New England. So that um, was a part of the the complexity of not being a Red Sox fan in this place. (laughs) But um, also, my idea of how I would do the archaeology of race or racism and, and... as a New Yorker, I really still thought of the ways to get at it was going to be in the South, plantations. Right. This is the obvious place in which we can understand the, the, the boundaries about how race is formed and shaped in the United States. But as I come into a place like New England, I am fascinated by the history of race in New England Mm -hmm. and listening or actually reading and learning about families like the Burkhardt family. Generations um, of Burkhards were here. And at the same time, there's a discussion of the opportunities that were afforded, yet there were limitations and there was a, a certain level of control in which it was not free movement. Um, the Fugitive Slave Act, um, when that came, caused serious repercussions for the lives, the daily lives of Interesting. Uh, African people in a place like Boston, where you needed to be careful. Uh, you know, now we are having, uh, I, I call it a a wave of of films about slavery right now, so you you learn about uh, you know Twelve Years a Slave, Samuel Northrop, in upstate New York, never thought about slavery, yet his freedom was very much. It's not a given, huh. and the ways in which Du Bois, although he was born three years after the Emancipation Proclamation his freedom is guaranteed yet the ideas of 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 the ways in which he is to understand himself as not he knows that he is not white he is reminded that and he says the first time when he figured out about race was actually when he tried to give a one of his classmates a female classmate Um, a valentine card and she would not accept Mm. that and he reiterates that and and he talks about how that hurt him and that was the first moment where he realized that he was not like everyone else that second moment is when he left new england and went to attend fisk university in nashville tennessee and it was at that moment where he realized that he had never experienced what it was to be black or African American or of African descent, he had never experienced it like he did when he went to a place like Tennessee because it was it was obvious that there was a segregate he it was segregation. But imagine in the Berkshires, which I call the rural north, imagine the numbers are so low. The idea of segregation, how would that work? Um,
1: and yet, Right. And the language he uses is so resonant and also in its way so kind of biblical, you know, the other Mm -hmm. world being in the world and not of it. Right. You know, and I wonder the way he diagnoses, you know, that experience. um, It's so complex and it's so powerful. And, you know, I mean, I want to ask you the question of, as a as a as an African-American woman in the twenty first century, I mean, obviously you you were raised in such a different world. Um, you're living in an America with a with a black president. um the the issue the the global issue that your family was that you were engaged with growing up was, you know, apartheid in South Africa, which actually mm-hmm. ended, right? I mean, so you had right. this whole different set of historical circumstances. um. um which is fascinating to try to imagine what would he say about all of this. But, yeah. but when he talks about, you know, in the very first essay, in The Souls of Black Folk, and he talks about the real question um, that is there between me and the other world, this ever unasked question you know unasked by some through feelings of delicacy by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it and the the question is how does it feel to be a problem and he feels mm. that question even you know un, un un no one it's not willed there it's sometimes unconscious it's in people with the best of intentions and ideals i mean does that does that question speak to you how, how does his di- you know does his diagnosis of this still uh, make sense a hundred years later?
0: His words speak to me directly, and I I've written about how um, in writing my dissertation I I wrote it on Andrew Jackson's plantation in Nashville Tennessee and. I often wrote, read a lot of um African American women's fiction mm. as in many ways a way to kind it was like a, a way to heal and to to stay kind of whole and to to read things that were um made me feel as if I was not alone Du Bois's words do very similar things for me because how does it feel to be a problem is and and the problem with the 20th century is the color line. Yeah. The idea that we have a president, president Barack Obama. Yet as an African American, I'm not I I look around at the kinds of things that happen and we constantly have new words to say what these are. It's it's, it's post-racial at the same time as the emergence of microaggressions. And what does it mean to, for me, I teach most of my courses are about slavery, they're about race, they're about gender, they're about the intersection of all these things. A majority of my students do not look like me. How the ways in which I walk as as an African American woman who is a scholar, who is a teacher, I live in an academic world that is somewhat hostile to some of the lessons that I teach, some of the research that I do. Um, it's... Du Bois's words, whether they're 100 years old or 150 years old, they are very relevant today. They are very... Um, they are present in how... I teach my children how to walk through the world because it's very important that I was equipped with the tools to be able to to handle academia.
1: Right.
0: And and I like academia because I it's kind of in some ways not a real world. Um <laughs> but um, well, it, yeah, you don't keep going. It, it is, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, but if, I, if I talk about race and it makes people uncomfortable, I, I know that that's a learning moment. And I think that Du Bois's conversation about blackness, about whiteness, about mm-hmm. the, the idea that I know that I live and I look through a veil... There is a double consciousness because
1: yeah, right. What is his, can, the double consciousness, and you know, one ever feels his two-ness, an American and Negro, two souls, two thoughts. So that's that's real for you. That still that's very
0: real uh-huh. because the way I'm the way I'm speaking to you right now, the 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 ideas and the books that I've read and the research that I do and all of these things are a very much a part of who I am. But at the same time, I grew up. I'm part of the hip hop generation. The soundtrack of my life, the things I listen to are not often what my colleagues listen to. Mm-hmm. I'm from the Bronx. I when I talk to my friends on the phone from home I don't speak like this. There's a I there's there's what we call code switching. There's what we call is I know how to speak to to uh, a donor, I know how to speak hmm. to. I, I still there's 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 my accent is there, my personality is there, my passion is there, but yet there is this doubleness in which I walk in the world with, because to be completely honest, whether I have a PhD or not, if I go into a store, there's still a chance that I'll be followed, based hmm. on what hmm. I look like. And so that double consciousness, that idea that race and racism is still in existence and in operation is very much a part of what Du Bois talked about. It's not not necessarily about, I could possibly evoke the talented 10th, which in some ways is often very misunderstood in a contemporary light. It wasn't, the ten percent who becomes educated and then leaves behind the masses, what there's a responsibility that that tenth has with the uplift of race, as he described it,
1: you know um i was and I was, as i was as I was reading you and getting to know you and and reading him i was I was really struck also by um this um you know, he was, I don't know, somewhere, I think it's in the, in, you know, one of the prefaces that someone wrote to one of his books. He was the great black intellectual of American history, which is probably a little, you know, there are probably other great black, there are other great black. Mm-hmm. But he is certainly right, you know, he uh, one of the absolute great black intellectuals. And in his time, I mean, you know, in 1903, when he wrote The Souls of Black Vote, I mean, to use Barack Obama's word, it was a completely audacious thing. To be, to be a black intellectual the way he was, to wield that yes. fierce intellect. And yet, you know, I found also, it seems to me that he also, in his global, in his ability to see, as you say, globally, the life of the mind was also a refuge and a place that transcended this history, right? Like, so here's something he wrote, um, and this is of the training of black men, um, I'm sure he would have written black men and black women if he were writing it today. But it's beautiful. Do you know this? I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. From out of the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they come all graciously, with no scorn nor condescension.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah. His grandfather's name was Othello. Really? Yes. Wow. Othello Burkhardt is where is the house he um spent the formative years. And so the the reason why that it makes me smile because I'm smiling right now because Sometimes, you know, sometimes when I read Du Bois, you know, it gives you goosebumps in some yeah. ways. Like, this, how did he put those words together, and why doesn't it happen that easily for me? <laughs> but I, I think that his mother was a, an amazing inspiration for him, but she pushed him in ways that are remarkable. Um, Mary Slovenia did not she was not well educated she did not go beyond i don't think she did high school completed it Hmm. however mary sylvinia burkhard saw something before her in her son that maybe she recognized or understood there was a certain level of talent that she had to grasp and, 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 and expand. But what happened was she looked at the world around her and factories were springing up in places like Pittsfield and Stockbridge and Great Barrington. African-Americans were not being hired at those places. There was an influx of Irish immigrants mm. coming, which Du Bois writes about pretty um, not in good terms. Yeah. Um, and this the the industries that african americans could kind of count on to work in and thrive in which were agriculture agriculture was threatened somewhat because of railroads and the ability for things to move quicker between place from place to place and then even within the service industry, remember Great Barrington in the Berkshires has always been a place of um, vacations rain, and where people rain. go to relax. So the service industry and the restaurants and um, uh, people who are cleaning and maintaining homes is shifting away from the hands or out of the hands of African Americans. Mary Sylvania, and this is my interpretation, <laughs> Mary Sylvania saw this and realized that there was one way that her son would be great, and that was through education. Hmm. He, hmm. In the, among the Burkhards, he is the only one that went as far as he did, and he was the valedictorian.
1: Oh, of his, his mind class. is just incredible. We talked about this before it started, it just leaps off the page. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Um, and women, right? Um, his. I I, I suspect, and I haven't really investigated this, but I I suspect that as a man of his time, um, there was complexity to, you know, how he thought about women and treated women. Um, But some (laughs) of the messages, you know, I just know that's got to be true. Um, (laughs) um, But again, you know, thinking about him as this prescient figure who belonged more in this century than that, you know, I mean, there's this writing he did in, Oh, this essay, The Damnation of Women. Mm-hmm. And again, this is, I don't know, Darkwater. When did he write that? Was that early 20th century, also?
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, 1919.
1: Uh, I mean, and if you think about how, well, so, you know, he, you know these, the, the ways he reflected as a man of that time on, you know, when in this world a man comes forward with a thought, a deed of vision, we ask not, how does he look? But what is his message? It is about passing interest whether or not the messenger is beautiful or ugly. The message is the thing that he was thinking about that. And then he says, um, what is today the message of these black women to America and to the world? The uplift of women is next to the problem of the color line and the peace movement, our greatest modern cause. When now two of these movements, woman and color, combine in one the combination has deep meaning, and that's pretty amazing when you think about how the women's movement in this country grew out of women becoming <laughs> awakened in the civil mm-hmm. rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I, I. Is this is this is this an important piece of him
0: for you? Yes, I. I think. And everybody is is not in agreement. I had a reviewer that disagreed with some of my um, assertions about Du Bois and women, um, and not necessarily completely calling him a black feminist. But the problem that I have is that, for me, feminism should never have an M, it should always have an S on the end. Feminisms exist because we are all complex people. The fact that the crisis, the literary arm of the NAACP, he employed and published many, many women Hmm. in a moment where that was not common practice. Which meant that he has written essays on, on everything from birth control to Yeah, right. Um, that he was even thinking about those things. It's it it's it's comp it's complicated and at the same time he in later in life, after the death of his first wife, or I, I wanna say maybe not the after the death of his son Burkhardt, who died in infancy, um he realizes that all of his time spent away from home had to impact his wife. And he realized how much that hurt him. And so it's because it hurt her. And there's, Mm. you know, the way in which he talks to women in his personal life is, for me, is telling of a man who understands and has written that if... Our women are not equal. Then this civil rights movement will not work. So there was this, the, there was an
1: integrity to you know, his ideas matched his behavior in in his private the, life.
0: Right, but I, I, but again, Du Bois is so complex. Yeah. And if if you talk about him in 1910 or 1930 or 1950, he's very different. He changes his views. He changes his mind. And he says he's old enough at a certain point that he can, which yeah, is right. why... You know, and, and I, the critique um, of this reviewer talks specifically about his condemnation or his dismissal of Ida B. Wells and some of...
1: Uh, Remind me who she was. And-
0: Ida B. Wells... Um, she had a big play in um, the anti-lynching movement. Okay, and she. Did I not get that word? She paper I Are think you? so. I I, I I I see. I I didn't do my research. On oh no,
1: that's okay. Well, it doesn't matter. Just
0: right. Just, um yeah. But. The idea that he wasn't one hundred percent supportive of certain movements right that could demonstrate his affinity with women who were against the destruction of black men and black women and mm-hmm. discrimination, et cetera. I think that it's problematic because we can't hold him to the standards for which we have today, yeah yeah and 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 that for me is why I, I like to use that, the, the concept of feminisms, because for me, I don't look, I don't, I don't find a lot of strength in the suffrage movement, because I don't think the suffrage movement, whether we include Sojourner Truth or not, for me, the suffrage movement did not speak to the the needs and the difficulties that black women were experiencing. I think that um, even the civil rights movement to an extent and second wave feminism to an extent held African-American women to a decision which was first. Is it race or is it gender? Right. And I think that Du Bois in a very complex and eloquent way demonstrates the idea that these two things influence and shape each other they can't it's difficult I can't separate those two aspects of my identity in order to fit into a movement and I think that Du Bois giving voice to women in the crisis him writing on particular topics that could have been seen as extremely controversial yeah. in which the NAACP often did not agree. And he was fired, I believe, twice <laughs> as editor of The Crisis because of his views. Um, so you're talking about him writing in a very bold and audacious way. His conversation with the nation about women, whether it be in The Crisis, though, so it would probably be Mostly contained, not entirely contained within the African American community. These are topics that even the African American community might have been a little unsettled by.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. I. It, um. So much of what he was saying, it's hard to imagine. You know, most of it didn't land well, right? I mean, so <laughs> much of it, there was no place for it to land. It's it's, it's so amazing. Yeah. Um, I I know we're I this I feel like I could talk to you for hours and I know we I think we just booked an hour. I I wanna ask you about um something that puzzles me as I look at the especially the biographies, especially the acclaimed biographies of him. They mm-hmm. they tell the story of a political person and completely strip out um all of his the, the spiritual uh, the, the very vigorous spiritual nature and all the religious imagery in his writing. Um, now, I I know that he had a complicated relationship with religion,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but um, that's a very big piece of him, and it's a big piece of his rhetoric, um, and and again the the symbolism he uses. Now. I'm pretty intrigued by—so I think, like, you know, it seems to be that there's this kind of uh, simplified line that a lot of these biographers have drawn between mm-hmm. saying he wasn't traditionally religious, so this doesn't matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so then I—like, so then I learn about you and, and the religious tradition in which your children are now the third generation— <laughs> which is this recovery of which was in which is another way of being African American and religious. Um, say something about that about the the tradition you belong to.
0: Um, so I grew up in. There's a lot of ways to say it, but it's basically a African traditional practice um, that began. Southwest Nigeria, in a place called Yoruba land, um, was brought here through the Middle Passage slavery. It's very much alive in places like Cuba and Brazil, and those are places that had an influx of African people yeah. well into the nineteenth century, um, late nineteenth century, and those are p- places where it survives um, most rigorously. I mean, more. Um, not stronger, but um, there are millions of practitioners of this um, faith in the United States now. Um, and I grew up. My grandparents were all—well, one side was Baptist, the other side was Church of God in Christ, which is uh, holiness. It's yeah. very the, the expressive. The largest
1: African-American Pentecost, charismatic.
0: Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. yes so i i uh and the the interesting thing is is a lot of times also when i when i initially do field work and things like that i've go to a lot of churches where i meet people and this is where i engage with communities and sometimes they ask me um you know am i am i saved or do i am i christian mm-hmm. they don't actually ask me if i'm christian They i think it's usually along the lines of do i believe in jesus mm-hmm. and i I, I have to refrain and say I believe in God. I believe in one God, and um, because the assumption is I'm African American, so I'm yeah. Christian um, or Muslim if I'm radical, mm-hmm, right? Um, mm-hmm. Radical in the sense of mm-hmm. um, a tradition that's very much a part of New York City and African American communities uh, steeped in Black nationalism, right? Yeah. And so. I come from the group that did not feel that Christianity or Islam spoke to them and spoke to their spirit and provided for them the strength and and just the connection that they needed. So um, Nigeria is a very complicated place, especially right now, Um, but... African traditional religions are under assault in on the continent of Africa because of um evangelical christianity um um Islam in the sense of of what is acceptable and there are practices that I want to say in a certain way are kind of i don't want to say underground but i it was described to me once as there's as an aspect of of African traditional practice that is a part of your culture but then you have religion
1: yeah right
0: and this interesting complexity is 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 diff- it's not separate for me um because I grew up understanding the different forms that my family practiced Christianity and for me I have no problem going with church be- going to church because for me gospel music I listen to it I love it and because it speaks to me because it makes me acknowledge my ancestors who were not African traditionalists
1: right and, and I
0: cannot separate myself from them because they did not call God Olofi like I do right so it mm-hmm. so that's 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 what I'm that's kind of why I can understand and relate to Du Bois because when I he, when I read him I understand that his dedication to his race, but his dedication to humankind is a very spiritual thing. Right. His, I think he was extremely spiritual in the ways in which he describes his world, um, the love for his land, the love for his people. Um, but yet it's the, the actual ways in which people who claim a certain amount of faith treat each other that for him does not compute it does not there's no way there's no reason why rational people should behave in ways that eliminate marginalize and discriminate against a people because of a certain past or because of some kind of philosophy that that is seemingly different from your own and i think in some ways uh, Mary Sylvania, his mother, was influential in him understanding um, the. I don't want to say dance, but the the ways in which he writes is is a part of his spiritual. He was he was in the church with his mother. He heard. And, and, you know, to be honest, there's this other part of him that I, I, I have to say, although she was a member of the Great Barrington First Congregational Church, he was very much tied and attached to um, Clinton AME Zion Church in Great uh-huh. Barrington. And for him, that was beautiful. That was wonderful. The Fisk Jubilee Singers were probably one of his most favorite things in life. And that's Negro spirituals at its finest. Oh
1: well, and he writes so much about the spirituals, which and he writes and and, you know the fact that they were called sorrow songs. I mean, yes, uh, he really, really gets to the root of that. I mean, you know, it's again, it's really hard for me to think that a biographer of Du Bois could think that what, however, you want to define spiritual and religious, that this is doesn't matter. When you know the first essay in Dark Water is credo, and I'm going to read this, this these first lines, which really, as you just described, the the fusion of culture and religious and, and religious tradition um you know he says i believe in god who made of one blood all nations that on earth do dwell i believe that all men black and brown and white are brothers varying through time and opportunity in form and gift and feature but differing in no essential particular and alike in soul and the possibility of infinite development I and mean, that is so beautiful
0: yes and 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 I I think because it's that separation, I think that it's hard to I, I think and perhaps it's it's an it's an easier way because of his embracing of communism very late in life. Yeah. But it it doesn't take away from his understanding of, of, of people and of the beauty of, and the spiritual, just this, there's so many things that are tied together that I've always seen him as a spiritual person. You have. Um, And, and you know, an example is the, the, to be completely honest and to kind of really momentarily move back to what I was just talking about. One of the places where my African traditional religion is strongest is on the island of Cuba. Mm -hmm. Last time I checked, that was communist. (laughs) So (laughs) how the way you walk and the way you think and the way you orient yourself to to your environment, the people around you, the the world around you, is a part of that spiritualism that if if it's condensed into one day a week or a particular book... Then that has to limit the way you see someone as complex and and incredibly intellectual as Du Bois was, and and you know he's not still alive, but the way I see him today.
1: Yeah, and um, you know to say that he was communist—it's just so important. I mean, Americans don't really have much of a memory of. The very different thing that meant in the early century and what it came to mean yeah. in the latter part of the century, and and you know, I, I know that he had some some kind of sympathy. I'm not sure how much relationship at all with the social gospel movement of the early 20th century, mm-hmm. um, which which was very um, resonant with a lot of with, with you know with communist thinking or or, or liberation theology in in yeah. in um, you know Gustavo Gutierrez the in Latin America in the latter part of the 20th century it was it was taking the highest human ideals of communism and and seeing in them some kind of you know bringing them together with the gospel so i I, you know i I don't i think that it it has there's actually a a very robust lineage of bringing communism and even even you know parts of orthodox christianity together
0: but i i have to stress that he the year was nineteen sixty one. He was ninety three years old. Mm. It was with trepidation that he. I've read the letter in which he joins the Amer the the Communist Party USA, and I want to stress that because he did not join the large. He joined the United States version of it, and it was he had just, he had been put on trial um at the age of 80 he realized that his efforts to eradicate or to bring attention to inequality at a level where mccarthyism you know was Damn. mccarthyism uh aged him i would say yeah. extremely well because for him it 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 is so difficult sometimes, and I talk about this in some of my classes, why is it so difficult for, for us to understand why African Americans would look at something like a system of communism, or just the idea yeah. of equal distribution of wealth yeah. in a country that benefited from free labor for how many years? The concept of Equally distributing that wealth is something that is not completely foreign yeah. for someone of African descent who does not see themselves as benefiting generationally from. I mean, the United States, sometimes, I mean, it's hard to be African American, whether our president is called and looks like Barack Obama or not. There's certain levels of disparity that still exist that when we think about communism or socialism or the idea of going to a doctor and and being able to, not pay for it, but being able to be treated, not based on your class or the money in your pocket or your health system, right? The idea, he talks about healthcare. He talks about the welfare state. He talks about all of these things that are very resonant, but they're also, someone could argue, (laughs) ideals that we have not been able to achieve at this moment.
1: Yeah, you know, it
0: seems to me he
1: has such a complex and fascinating, you know, and wise analysis of the unfinished business of reconstruction. And and then it seems to me that a lot of what he a lot of his diagnosis also applies to what we're grappling with now, which is the unfinished business of civil rights, right? Right. So let me just ask you this. I want to just ask you two more questions. You know, this idea, this famous sentence of his, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. How do you hear that now? And, you know, is the problem of the 21st century the problem of the color line? Does that still apply? Or would you would you nuance that statement? Or do you think he would nuance it if he was with us now?
0: I, I think... It holds true, but I think it would be nuanced a little bit. I think the problem, and and, and also I have to back up just a little because I'm an anthropologist, right? So uh-huh. according to anthropologists, the idea of race as a biological fact is not. Race is a social construction. Yeah. Race doesn't exist. Yet the repercussions, the material effects of racism is very real. Um, The problem with the 21st century is our our amnesia that the color line exists. Mm. It took me a minute to try to come up with what that was. Because it's, it's, when I hear post-racial, and I hear, oh, I, it, and I understand there's a level of complexity with what race means to different people. And, and, and because, to be completely honest, if we read some of the work of, 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 of scholars like George Lipsich, which talks about the possessive investment in whiteness, Right, we we have to be very careful that if we talk about race, we're not just talking about other, with a capital O. That's very nice. Yeah. But we're talking about. And Du Bois discusses this. There really is technically no black without white.
1: Well, right. And I. This is another thing that he. I mean, as you say, we know more now. We know things yeah. now, even in the last few years about how much this is a social construct right that that he they didn't know right. definitively biologically scientifically i mean but you know here here he's writing this essay mm-hmm. called the souls of white folk and he says mm-hmm. the discovery of personal whiteness among the world's peoples is a very modern <laughs> thing a 19th and 20th century matter indeed The ancient world would have laughed at such a distinction. The Middle Age regarded skin color with mild curiosity. And even Mm -hmm. up into the 18th century, we were hammering our national mannequins into one great universal man with fine frenzy, which ignored color and race even more than birth. Today, we have changed all that. And the world, today, we have changed all that. And the world, in a sudden emotional conversion, has discovered that it is white. And by that token, wonderful.
0: <laughs> I mean, he wrote that. And it's like, I, I'm just speechless yeah. because I, I, i he. And this is, this is what I'm saying. It's the amnesia.
1: Yeah, that is of what you're saying.
0: Understanding yeah. how completely overarching the ideal of races. It's like saying that. Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South, segregation is over. It's illegal. Everyone must do, you must go to the same school. Yes, right now, from this January 1st, whatever year, that does not change the practice, the thoughts, the beliefs of generations of people. Law does not change the way people live and walk and work and interact.
1: And don't you so, think, yeah, and isn't that just like, you know again, isn't that what we're we're figuring out right I mean, yeah. right the and I mean even in this year of fiftieth anniversaries of civil rights, all these milestones that laws did change and progress was yes. made, but it didn't it didn't take this all the way, yes, but I mean i I do I, I wonder, I do feel like we're at least, it, I, t- to me, I wonder if it's progress that we're starting to be able to name this fact. I don't know.
0: I, th- I think it, I think it is. I think that, and f- and for me, I. I know that I'm only one person, and I. But I know, and the, part of the reason why. I think I do what I do and I teach the classes that I teach are because it is about exchange. It is about even just making someone think twice about something that they've never thought about. I teach a course called Race in the American Museum. Mm. First day of class, you know, most people, I'd never thought about race in a museum. And I say, wow, maybe you don't have to. But I know personally, I walk into a museum, I'm not really the person you want to come into your tour, mm. because I'm kind of, where, where are the other people, you know, I, I just, and I look for myself, you know, I, I look for vestiges of, of the fact that, where is my representation? Mm-hmm. How am I represented Along multiple lines, and the inab- or the, the, the ability to walk through a space without ever thinking that is just as important as thinking about how you're not reflected.
1: All right, so
0: it's, it's marking and I, I don't want to say this in a negative way, it's, it's, it's understanding privilege at the same time it is, as it is to understand how it feels to walk as that veiled other. Right. Right. This, right. right. This duality is a duality because of the world around us. But it's up to us in a lot of ways as we name these things. It's, the possibilities are endless. And I, I don't, I, I know it's to a certain extent, it sounds a little pessimistic. But I'm an optimist in the sense that um, the conversations that I have with my children are fascinating mm. because they see themselves as they look at the world. And they're amazed, and they want to see other places. Um, my eight-year-old, almost eight-year-old son. Um, you know, one of the things we <laughs> that I joke, and I said, well, at some point I want us to live in a place, even if it's for a short period of time, where um, um, where there's people that look like us that are on the money. And for him, that was like, wow, that was this marked, like seminal moment. Like, hmm. really and when i do work in other when i go to other places and i bring back money we have a discussion about what that means and how what does it mean to have not just have uh, a president of african descent but what does it mean mm. when everybody in the government looks like this and there are places on this earth that look like that and and so it 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 expands us into not being so isolated and narrow into thinking that the world thinks in black and white as we do in the United States. Well, let me
1: ask you this. Have you, have you talked to your kids about Du Bois or if you did, you know, what, what would you, and I'm, I'm kind of asking this question and it's kind of a larger question too. You know, how would you begin to reintroduce, um, what this man, this mind, um, has to say to us now?
0: Hmm. Uh, Yes, I talked, well, yes, I talked to them, about a lot of things. I, t- I talk to them about race. I talk to them about um, philosophers. I talk to them about, um, you know, Malcolm and Martin and Du Bois. And, and I, I think when I talk about Du Bois, uh, because they associate Du Bois with, you know, that that's mommy's work <laughs> sometimes. Oh, right. Okay. And... Um, but they also know he's from Great Barrington. they've been out you know to his home site and um I think more along the lines of I try to talk about him and you know we read books on rosa parks and and um the civil rights movement and um but i the questions I think will come i I talked to them about the kinds of things that he stood for. The thing that stands out for my son is that he lived and died and is buried in Ghana. That for him is it, Du Bois, yes.
1: Interesting. Um,
0: My son really wants to go to Ghana and he really wants me to be, Uh somehow work in Ghana for a while. He's like, I I wanna go to Ghana. And he was like, well, you could do work in Ghana because Du Bois went there, right?
1: What well, um, what would you have the future, them if he if your son at some point it, as he gets older he says, what you know if he started reading Du Bois and again this would be advice to other people
0: too where would you have him start? Oh. Oh. I it it would be the Souls of Black Folk. Yeah. That's that was the first Du Bois book I read and I. I want to say I was. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I think I started skimming it when I was probably like eight or nine, maybe ten. It, I, I thought it was interesting that there was this little music on the top of this yes, book. Yes, every chapter, was, you know. It was my my it was musical, my mom's little musical
1: scores yeah. And, and, yeah, lyrics.
0: My, my, mom's, my mom's version of it is an old version, and it was teeny, so I thought it would be an easy book to read. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was complicated.
1: Yeah. Um, any any, just final thoughts on, you know, what would you want to offer up to people who might not have heard of Du Bois that he has to offer them?
0: Um, du Bois, uh, think about Du Bois today. And I, I really, in many ways, however complicated and complex he is, The spirit and the legacy and the words of Du Bois need to come alive again in this country. We have a lot to learn from him, from the Philadelphia Negro, which he wrote in the 1890s, to the souls of black folk. Um, His dissertation was about the suppression of the slave trade. I his autobiographies span so much that happened in our lives or in our history as a as a country but i also want people to take away he was born 3 years after the emancipation proclamation and he died on the eve of the march on washington yeah the things that he saw means that whatever you're interested in i have a feeling that du bois wrote something on it
1: <laughs> do you have any do you have like a i and this, you may not cuz i'm i'm terrible at these kinds of questions so do you have like a favorite line of his or favorite phrase or image
0: um I'm still unpacking it, um, but it's um, his idea of how he remembers the Burkharts and his family. And he talks, and I'm going to probably misquote it, but he um, talks about it is the mothers and the mothers of mothers whom I seem to remember and the fathers are in the shadows. Huh. And I I'm still unpacking that because he talks and it, and it's a it's a couple of more words that I'm probably missing in that. But it, he speaks about the beauty of his grandmother Sally. The the sadness in the face that he remembers of his mother. And then he remembers his uncles and his grandfather as kind of distant. For him, what what, what, what he remembers is, is these women. And in many ways, that could have been because after he left his grandparents' house, he went to live with his mother, and she was a single mother. And I don't want to... And the reason why I say I unpack this and I say this with caution because I I don't want to create a double standard or reiterate a stereotype Mm -hmm. of mothers as being the only thing that we remember. What that symbolizes for me is that although the time he lived in It was his mother's and his mother's mothers. uh, The quote is his mother's and his mother's mothers that seem to count. That's what it is. And the reason why I stress that is because of the influence of those women in his life. He, as complicated as it was, he always saw the liberation of women as part and parcel to the civil rights and the liberation of black people. So it was never about... African American men, civil rights. Yeah, movement. I, would,
1: I would say even the the civil rights movement, the liberation of black people, and of humanity. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I mean, that's that's uh, one of these things that suddenly this century is waking up to is women, <laughs> women everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Well. This is just really great. And um, I'm so glad my colleagues are with you there. So <laughs> thank you for being part of this. And we'll, uh, you know, obviously, we'll, you're, you're getting to know Lily and Mariah and we'll let you know what's happening with this. And it's just very thrilling. And I just really loved our conversation.
0: Great. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye.